Hold the thought. And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand, Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And I guess we're underway. Here we are in uh, the first, second second podcast of the, of the new year. Third podcast of the new year. Well, depends on where you live, doesn't it? What came out in the new year? It came Everywhere. out in the new year. Well, actually, that's true. It was distributed. It was even in the quibble, new year. Quibble, quibble. Isn't that the, 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 the motto of the Kutcher podcast? Forget rambling. It's squibbling now. See, just squibbling over. We could spend this entire hour talking about how many podcasts we've done this year. Uh, meanwhile, uh, we should probably be looking at other things. We've already talked this year about the books we liked last year. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, corrections made by our listeners. By the way, if our listeners hear me make a mistake, as I did by referring to a John Sladek story as, in fact, a Tom Dish story, please let us know, because those mistakes are not as rare as people might want to think. Um, and then we look forward to books we're looking at this year, and since we recorded the last podcast, I've read one more novel that's coming out this year that I liked quite a bit. I'm reading yet another one, and I hope to have a couple more that we can talk about later on. But meanwhile, the news shockingly, this week... Sh- no, no, shockingly, what? I too have read a 2019 book. I'm impressed. I know you should be, because like last year I read like four, right, that weren't short we're fiction. Talking about, we're talking about a novel. A novel, an actual novel. What did you read? I read Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Really want to see that one too. Which is coming out in September from Tor.com. Uh-huh. And I was able, because I have, you know, I have connections, Gary, uh, to get an advance bound manuscript. And this is Tamsin's debut novel, first in a series. And for all that I have some quibbles, and I, mm-hmm. I have to say that I enjoyed it and I would recommend it. And I am now reading a second 2019 novel whilst being completely you know, sort of negligent in my duties, because I'm trying to get some actual 2019 reading in, uh, though mm-hmm. I have January and February and even March magazines starting to pile up. And you have to, you have to read the short fiction. I have to, have to. Though, though, though not as much of it as I used to, though the world doesn't know that yet. Mm. But, but this actually oh. is going to become, the, I know I'm talking over you because I want to get into something because I just realized, based on our previous okay. conversations, listeners, you should realize that we didn't know we were going to have an record an episode we didn't have a topic we started chatting and then suddenly i went we can get something out of this and this is about to become the nina nina cast do you know why because this week the science fiction writers of america announced the 2019 damon knight grand master award and the entirely wonderfully justified recipient of that award was william gibson and the reason it's a Nina Nina award is because I spent, it felt like five days having passionate discussions at the Worldcon in San Jose last year, arguing about who should get the, the, um, the uh, Grandmaster Award and whether William Gibson uh, should get it. And a friend who shall remain nameless but knows who they are, was, uh-huh. and wasn't Gary, I have to say, listeners, wasn't Gary, no, it was, not. was adamant that William Gibson was not going to get it, would never get it, was mostly irrelevant to the world. But here we are, Gary. Well, here we are, but the counter-argument, as I heard it, and I had, I was not part of that conversation, but I was part of us. I know who you're talking about. I know part of the argument was that Gibson has... Had moved on. Uh, Gibson, 
science fiction is a house, or I think as he himself said once, it's where he grew up and no longer lives. Um, I think there's some truth to that, but, but and, and I know also the argument was, you know, you couldn't or shouldn't perhaps for a grand mastership base it on a single work, though that's not what it would be anyway, because at the very not. least, the core of Gibson's short fiction achievement, sorry, science fiction achievement, would be the Sprawl trilogy uh, of, Burning, of of Neuromancer, Count Zero, and the last one. Mona Lisa Overdrive. Mona Lisa Overdrive. And also the, you know, the short fiction that was in the collection Burning Chrome. And that by itself almost should be enough. I mean, if Alfred Bester can be a grandmaster based on basically two novels, then certainly yeah. Bill Gibson can. And also a bunch of important short fiction. Um, I would make the argument that subsequent works, uh, Eduardo, the Blue Ant trilogy, uh, the, 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 that deal with science fiction, they're certainly not necessarily marketed as science fiction. He's a best-selling writer. Now, he's, he's got the best of several worlds. He's a well-respected literary writer. He writes bestsellers. He's still, I think, widely respected in the science fiction community. What I objected to about that argument was the notion that, well, he's, he's moved out of the neighborhood, so we shouldn't give him an award, should we? I don't think he thinks he's ever moved out of the neighborhood. I think that he was writing stuff from his own experience and his own frankly, limited understanding of, of, of computers and cybernetics, even at the beginning. But he had a really good sense of the zeitgeist. And I think the other thing that's true is that he, how would I put this, he never lost a science fiction sensibility. The, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. following nine novels or whatever it is that, that you know, came out have all been science fictional in mindset. He is someone who has his eye on on the future, on the world around us, who is, who, who is, I mean, I heard this great quote, which I've now lost and can only mm. paraphrase from the late, great Peter Nichols talking about what science fiction writers do, you know, how sort of like, like dogs at the hunt, they raise, raise their heads and sort of sniff the kind of, you know, the, the, the oncoming winds of the future and follow, follow kind of thing. Mm. And that's very much the kind of thing that Gibson's always done in all of his fiction. You know, the first time I turned, the first time I heard the term "cool hunter" was from Gibson, and as, as, as much as that seems like an archaic term now, it was very accurate. He was, he, I, I was always learning things about uh, about the future arriving faster than we thought. His famous quotation about the future being, you know, it's already here but unequally distributed. And I still recall reading in, I think, the first Blue Ant novel. I can't remember, which, or maybe the second one. Reading things about like a Klein blue suit. I mean, they, I, I didn't know what Klein blue was, uh, and it turns out it's a thing. It's a thing that he, you know, uh, knew before anybody else did. For a while, I don't know if they're still on the market. There were a line of William Gibson mail order bomber jackets that you could buy because they were just so cool. So he had. He, okay, he's the only science fiction writer, as far as I know, ever to have a clothing line. <laughs> no, that would be that would be courageous. I could, I reckon you could come up with one more. But uh, what I would say is that it, what I think people lose track of is that his novel Neuromancer was so explosively embraced, and that it was so deeply consumed into the culture that you cannot see how influential. It has been because you are inside the sphere of its influence. So much of popular culture is based on what was in that book. 
Right, and you're talking about a novel that came out oh, 35 years ago now? Yeah. Uh, something like that. Uh, so that you have people who've grown up with the influence of that novel. And, and to some extent, when I've, I've taught it once or twice, and it's fascinating to look at the way students respond to what is really a very uh, primitive idea of, of cyberspace. But it is such a convincing cultural portrayal of cyberspace that it doesn't feel as outdated as many novels of the period do. Um, and, and and it's one of those, well, not rare, but one of those unusual books where a diverse range of people began to inv- invest themselves in making sure it came true because they thought it was so cool. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's partly where the where, where, where the clothing fetish comes from as well. well. Sure, sure, sure. So you know, I think it's a thoroughly deserved grand mastership. I think if you're fortunate enough to be able to go to the nebulas in April, you will probably have a fabulous time and be able to salute Bill Gibson just as his new novel comes out. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And that segues beautifully into our next topic because. Yeah. Um, Bill Gibson's Neuromancer was a recipient of the 1985 Philip K. Dick Award. It is, as I was just saying to you, in my opinion, probably mm-hmm. the height of the awards. Now, that probably sounds... You know, when, you, when, when you realize the award only started in 1983, to peak in 1985 seems like a really cruel accusation. But, as cool. we were saying, the reason for, for, for that observation is this. By 1985... We were moving, I'll I put to you that we were moving past the peak of the influence of the paperback on science fiction for a start. It would begin its descent. You'd have the rise of the trade paperback, the rise of oh. the ebook, the internet, audiobooks, da 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 da. And then also, you know, it happened to be that that year was the year of the Ace Science Fiction Specials. Mm-hmm. You know, that new SS Science Fiction Specials. So that was when Green Eyes by Lucia Shepard came out. It was when The Wild Shore by Kim Stanley Robinson came out. And then Bones by Howard Waldrop and the Carter Schultz book as well, and Glenn, Glenn Harcourt novel as well. So, you know, they re- that, you know, after that was never quite as, the paperback was never quite as influential, I don't think. Well, we should explain a little bit about why the Philip K. Dick Awards seemed to be a necessity at the time they were invented. Uh, because the Hugo all awards, um, the Hugo Awards and 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 well, the Nebula Awards were around by then also, tended to favor hardcover books. The goal of any writer was to come out in the hardcover, uh, and part of the history of science fiction, going back to the uh, earliest paperbacks in the late forties and throughout the fifties, paperbacks from Bantam Books and from 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 Ballantine especially and from Dell, a lot of science fiction classics appeared as paperback originals and tended not to get serious attention for awards simply because they were published as disposable, limited-life, limited-shelf-life paperbacks. So recognize, and Philip K. Dick, of course, was one of the writers who grew up in ace paperbacks, uh, even though he did have Time Out of Joint was an early hardcover in his career. So the idea was to, to uh, sort of address that imbalance, address essentially the snobbery of the hardcover book. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. By the time the Philip K. Dick Awards were well underway, the mass market paperback, which they were really designed to celebrate, was on the way out. Or, or, well, let's be more generous and probably more accurate. Not so much on the way out as at the, the commencement of a long, slow, gentle decline. Okay. You know, Slowly on. Out I mean, I, because, I mean, 
mass market paperbacks were still very much to the fore in the mid-90s. They just weren't quite as much to the fore. And certainly yeah. now, today, you kind of feel like they're uh, – plainly, they still exist. But they feel almost like an oddity when you, when you see them, or at least they do to me. And I'm sure well, that someone who actually understands publishing will come along and say, you guys are talking crap. But that's the way it feels. Well, I'm sure it's still possible to print and distribute a lot more copies of a paperback title than a hardcover title. Just the economics of publishing has to do with that. But the, the, the areas of distribution have shrunk. I mean, by and large, the mass market paperback, when I was a kid, showed up in every drugstore, in bus stations, in supermarkets, not just simply in bookstores. Pretty much those venues have dried up, and, and, and so the bookstore becomes the source of all – and it, when I go to the, my local uh, Barnes & Noble down the street, I'm a little surprised to see as many mass market paperbacks as there are on the shelf, but they aren't the majority of books there anymore. They're outnumbered by graphic books, by uh, trade paperbacks, not by hardcovers because hardcovers are still selectively – do, do you and I, though, need to be cautious about – extrapolating from my personal experience too much here. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I stand by what we've said. I think that yeah. the paperback was at the commencement of a decline by the mid-'80s, that the Philip K. Dick Award came along for the purpose that you said it had, and it yeah. peaked at that point as well, and was never quite at, you know, by the end, from 1994, although the people running it were serious people and they recognized excellent books, it didn't have quite the same role potentially to play. And in the last 15 years has had quite a different kind of uh, role to play because it's now trying to, you know, I think it's, they spend time trying to find books, in fact, that are published initially in uh, paperback because that's what it's for. It's like science fiction publishing, you know, thing. And well, the thing, we, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead and finish your thought because... Uh, oh, just, and, and obviously the reason that we are having this conversation is because... The nominees for the 2019 Philip K. Dick Award mm. have just been announced today. Which is what I was going to suggest you mention next. Well, there you go. I'm mentioning it, and I'll even go so far as to, to tell you know, listeners, if you're, if you're not aware, which works of fiction have been nominated, because it, it, it recognizes anything published in, the, in, the, in North America during the previous calendar year in a paperback original form. It's not actually yeah. mass market specifically according to its rules, at least any longer. I don't know if it always was. So trade paperbacks are included. The nominees for this year are Time Was by Ian MacDonald, published by Tor.com Publishing, The Body Library by Jeff Noonan, published by Angry Robot, 84K by Claire North, published by Orbit, Alien Virus Love Disaster by Abby May Otis from Small Beer Press, Theory of Bastards by Audrey Shulman from Europa, and Ambigu Ambiguity Machines and Other Stories by Vandana Singh from Small Beer Press. Interesting thing about that is the um, there are two or is it three short story collections on the list? There are two, and there's one, and there's one novella. Yes. Uh, so the 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 rise of the novella, which we've talked about before. Thanks in part to Tor.com, thanks in large part to Tor.com, but also to Tachyon, to Subterranean, to uh, whoever else, yeah. Aqueduct, and so forth and so on, has made the paperback a viable kind of 
made, made the novella a viable kind of paperback today's market. The other thing is that it's still, my understanding from talking to a number of writers, it's still very difficult to get a hardcover short story collection, even if you've won, won many awards and have a lot of, uh, a great deal of popularity. So the short story collection seems to have migrated largely into the small press, which tends to put them out in uh, in dual editions of trade paperbacks and ebooks. Yeah, I mean, pro- probably the sole exception to that is if you're coming out from a, a deluxe publisher, I guess, or whatever you want to call it. So, like, if you're coming out from Subterranean, you're going to come out in hardcover. If you come out from PS Publishing, you're probably coming out in hardcover. But you're coming out in limited editions. Yes, oh, yeah, uh, I know. which I wouldn't disparage, but, you know, yeah. No, I wouldn't disparage, but by and large, uh, it's the, to some extent, those are collector's editions. Those are editions um, that, that, that are worthwhile. I think the idea of the, the two small beer collections that you mentioned, the Vandana Singh collection and the Abby Mayotis collection, are one is by a writer who I frankly didn't know anything about until I'd read that collection, Abby Mayotis, and the other a writer who had a substantial reputation based on short fiction um, and who was putting out a first collection. My argument is that the Vandana Singh collection 30 or 40 years ago might very well have been a hardcover collection because here's a writer who had uh, a, a well-known reputation built up from uh, a, a lot of short fiction over a period of time. Uh, it seems to me that in today's market, uh, a, a press like Small Beer is the most appropriate place to sell, uh, to, to publish and probably reach the audience that a book like that needs to reach. Um, and yet it has almost it has very little connection with the mass market paperback that we started talking about. Now, I should also say that the judges this year, because it is, I don't know if it's relevant, but I should tell you, were Madeline Ashby, Brian Atterbury, Christopher Brown, Rosemary Edgehill, and Jason Hoch, H-O-U-G, so maybe Ho or Hoff or Hog. Anyway, hi, Jason. Apologies if I got it wrong. What's interesting to me about the five books that are up this year, only one probably was a traditional mass market paperback. That'd be the mm-hmm. Jeff Noon, the Jeff Noon novel, the the Body Library. Two or three were trade paperbacks, and one was, as you say, a a novella edition. What's interesting yeah. is the kind of science fiction that they're also recognising, because this actually is for, you know for the best, most distinguished science fiction published in paperback original. And I look at, say, Time Was, which is a story that I acquired and edited and loved deeply. The actual science fiction element for, of it is not particularly cutting edge. Well, now, we should back up a little bit because is the venue of the award, and I've not looked it up and I should have, does it include science fiction and fantasy or is it limited to science fiction? No, because it is expressly distinguished science fiction. But the second award I'm looking at right now went to Tim Powers, the Anubis Gates. Uh, I don't award these things, or I'm, I'm merely reading to you what the, the people who administer the awards sent out. I think it's I, I think it's sort of more or less evolved into a science fiction award. Um, but here's the other question that Time Was raises an interesting uh, question in general, which could be a separate talk altogether. I've been in arguments with with fellow critics about whether a story like that is a time travel story. Or is it time slip fantasy? Is it because it involves shifting back and forth in time? Does that alone make it science fiction? Um, or is it actually a fantasy of the sort we've seen 
for over a hundred years since you know Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee or Robert Nathan's Portrait of Jenny and so forth. I don't know. I'm I'm I'm, I'm curious though because I keep thinking back to a piece that Paul Kincaid, friend of the podcast, mm-hmm. wrote for the LA Times Book Review a couple of years ago about mm-hmm. what it, what is best in a science fiction year and what science fiction should do or should not do or is for and how you should attempt to measure best and as much as again I love Time Was and I think it's I'm delighted that it's it's nominated and I confess whilst I have read Alien Virus Love Disaster and Ambiguity Machines and other stories I've not read 84K or The Body Library or uh, Theory (laughs) of Bastards so I have to be but these books don't strike me as being necessarily what I would think of as cutting-edge science fiction, which is what a Paul Kincaid would argue, I think, to put words into his mouth, um, is what the best should be. Do you think that that's reasonable, or it's not a broad enough embracement of what science fiction can be? We're going to have to invite Paul back on the podcast, because I don't agree with him about that. I think there are ways in which you measure the progress of science fiction, and I don't think progress is a good term. But I think the notion that science fiction moves by innovative, cutting-edge ideas is, is a fairly archaic view of science fiction. I don't think science fiction necessarily advances it. I don't think a new major science fiction work has to have a new, terribly innovative uh, idea in it. And I think well, the reason for that and my argument for that is that what science fiction has been about – actually in at some point going to publish an essay on this. What science fiction is about is bringing new perspectives and new ideas. And bringing a new perspective to an old idea can be as innovative as developing a new idea. Uh, You could, for example, go through a novel which we both liked a lot last year, um, Blackfish City, uh, Sam Miller's novel, and find point by point antecedents to almost everything he has in that novel. The combination of things in it is fairly unique. Uh, another novel I liked last year, and uh, from a writer who has another book coming out this year, was a River Solomon Generation Starship novel. Um, we also saw Kim Stanley Robinson Generation Starship novel. I just read one of the short stories I uh, just finished reading um, by Sarah Penscrew. It's a Generation Starship story. There's nothing particularly innovative about the idea of a generation starship, but each of these books or stories brings a different perspective and a different argument to that idea. And my argument is this, that if you look at a familiar story from a completely new perspective, that is a way of reinventing the idea of the story. I mean, another example, which has nothing to do with diversity, but does have to do with this question of perspective, is when you have uh, Peter Watts or Sam Miller going back and looking at John Carpenter's movie The Thing and rewriting the story from, in one case, the alien's perspective, and the other case, the perspective of a survivor who becomes involved in the AIDS movie. It shifts the nature of the story. So a new perspective can be as valuable in a science fiction story as a completely new idea. Yeah, I think that's fair. But anyway, what we didn't say, and I would say this now, is congratulations to all of the Philip K. Dick Award nominees. Uh, And I look forward to hearing who wins when the time comes in a couple of months. The other thing, of course, that's happened, and we have shouted out about this before, because this is... Okay, 
This is Science Fiction and Fantasy. If this is your first Good Street podcast, welcome. And we'd like mm-hmm. to make it clear that you, you know that, that we pretty well. I pretty much feel. I think you feel. The Science Fiction Fantasy Awards season lasts for ten months of a twelve-month year. Mm-hmm. We are well and truly into it. You know, the, you know, having seen the you know, the Grand Master Award uh, presented as we or sorry announced as we said, mm-hmm. and ha- having had the first shortlist starting to come out from covering last year with the Hugo Awards nominations now wide open and ready for for you to come in and you know, obviously support the podcast um, and many more to come you were asking the question of me Gary which I feel we've touched on before but we can touch on again mm-hmm. because we didn't organize anything for today um, as to whether we have too many awards mm-hmm. which we do Yes and no. I mean, it's it's nice to get an award. We have awards. Every year there are awards I've never heard of. Every year there are anthologies of specialized kinds of science fiction and fantasy stories that I haven't heard of before. I don't see anything problem – I don't have any problem with celebrating all these different perspectives and subgenres and sub-subgenres and so forth and so on. Uh, the question is of general science fiction readers looking for new things to read um, – what let's say I'm a I'm a new reader, and I want recommendations for science fiction based on the awards. What can I expect when I look at a list of Nebula winners versus a list of Hugo winners versus a list of Philip K. Dick winners versus a list of World Fantasy winners or BSFA or BFA? In other words, isn't this just finally at some point confusing? No, because most readers never hear about these awards. Well, the, 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 they, they hear about a couple of them, a few of them, the, the, the primary the ones, but not many. The, the publicity departments, I, I've been told by publishers that the only award that actually sells books when you put it on copy of a paperback is the Hugo. Uh, Hugo seems to, and when the, it was interesting because I did an article in the Tribune when the sad puppy thing came up a couple of years ago, that made it clear to me that and when when you and I have been nominated for Hugo's, that's the only award I've ever been nominated for that anybody out in the general world has ever heard of. Um, it's it's almost like getting nominated for an Edgar Award, which and, and probably has the same level of general recognition. But apart from that, I'm not sure that anything uh, I think you're right. I think the Hugo reaches a kind of general readership. I think everybody kind of knows what it is. Beyond that I'm not sure. Maybe the Nebula. Well, it, even in the within the science fiction readership, rather than out in the community at large, I can see that the Hugo, the Nebula, the World Fantasy, maybe the Campbell Memorial, maybe the Philip K. Dick, maybe the Jackson, maybe the Sturgeon. But you're beginning to by the, you know, by the time you get to those guys, you're beginning to move away from awards that a lot of people would be familiar with. You know, I think frankly. That's true. I mean, to me, the, the three main ones in the field are the Hugo's, the Nebulas, and the World Fantasies. But that's my personal prejudice. I wouldn't sit there and make a, a, a you know, a, an overwhelming case for it. But th- th- those there's are the main a, ones to me. And I, I, I think there's also a danger of awards. Uh, it's, it's ha- it hasn't happened yet, much yet in science fiction. But there, there is a danger of awards becoming a little bit too hermetic and inbred. I suspect without and i suspect i could find some evidence of this but i suspect this is what hap- has happened with some horror awards with the world horror uh, for example the, uh, the the 
awards given out for most of the lists of, of horror nominees that I've seen now are books I've frankly never heard of. And to some extent, one of the awards – and here's the, here's the other thing we can talk about is given the number of awards, what is the justifi- justification for a new one? Well, one of the newer awards in the field over the last seven or eight or ten years is the Shirley Jackson Award. And to some extent, the Shirley Jackson Award is an effort to reclaim a certain kind of literary terror story – let's not even say horror story – from – the uh, from the narrower focus that uh, the, that the horror awards have, have moved into, it's possible, and I think that there are people who would love to see this happen, for science fiction awards to become hermetic to award the same thing over and over again. Um, but to some extent, the more the awards broaden out and and look at different perspectives, uh, the more they become challenging to readers. You can't look at a Hugo Award now or a World Fantasy Award. Uh, or a Nebula Award, and expect to have any notion at all of what the winner is going to be like. I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think it is a good thing. I mean, it, also, I mean, the, the, not all awards remain static. I mean, like, for example, you know, there are new uh, categories being announced every now again for the Hugos. They added a, a young adult category. They added the series category. Um, I think they're testing another category this year. I haven't really looked too closely yet. So there are you know, just changes in evolution for it, which is nice. Well, the Nebulas now have a gaming category. Uh, Every, well, everyone which, should have. Well, they, they should have in a, in, in a way, and this is one of the other reasons I think you need to have awards. Um, one of the things that frustrates me, my partner Dale, who, as you know, is, is very involved in gaming and knows a lot more about it than I do, and my friends who are involved in gaming, some of whom have been involved in writing for games, don't seem to be bothered by this as much as I am, but you, it's, it's difficult for me to figure out who the writers are behind these things. And recognizing an actual creative force behind a game or a comic book series uh, is something that you know, requires a little bit of effort unless the writers gain some visibility. And today, when we have major writers, we, well, one of the people we've talked about, a novel I'm reading right now is G. Willow Wilson's uh, new novel, The Bird King. Uh, somebody who's written a very successful comic book series, now being taken over by another writer who deserves the recognition, Saladin Ahmed. Uh, we've had uh, any number of... Nettie Okorafor doing her comic book series. Um, so I think that those industries that have tended over historical time to demean writers or to make writers invisible to the corporate identity... I think awards that recognize the actual writers sort of force the corporations to recognize the actual creators behind these things as well. Maybe so. Maybe so. I don't know. That that's, could be plausible. Um, yeah. Hmm. I mean, there's no doubt that, that writing games, writing comic books, writing graphic novels, writing screenplays, although the screenplays uh, recognized by the Hugo Awards tend to be enormously successful mm-hmm. movies that, for which the Hugo Awards don't mean much of anything. But the general idea behind these awards, when you have so many people in our field, fantasy and science fiction and horror writers, writing for what we used to think of as alternative media. Yeah. uh, Maintaining the dignity of the act of writing is something that awards do, which is one of the reasons I'm very pleased that the Nebulas are looking at gaming because uh, the number of people I know who have gone into gaming and done brilliant work 
and com- remain completely anonymous to the users of those games, frankly, I find disturbing. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you ever uh, read graphic n- narratives? I don't, uh, and I really should. I mean, I've, I've read some. I can't keep up with them. There are too many. I feel like I'm completely ignorant of uh, what's good and what's bad in the field. I, 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 I did read the entire Sandman series, but years after everybody else had, so I don't feel up to date with that even. Fair enough. I mean, I just noticed that because, I mean, you mentioned Nettie Okorafor, and, of course, mm-hmm. Nettie Okorafor has her, I think it's her first what, you know, created, created series out yeah. in the world now, uh, LaGuardia, which is moving into its third issue, I think, or at the moment. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're saying that Salad Nama has taken over Ms. Marvel, which is what uh, G. Willow Wilson was wor- working on and she created after she'd won the World Fantasy Award for Aleph the Unseen. So I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about her new novel when, you, when you're done. I would imagine it will, should be excellent. She's very accomplished. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what else is going on. Um, it, it's a strange part of the year, trying to get sort of things moving forward. Well, it's part of the year where we're seeing um, a lot of interesting things. You mentioned this is G. Willow Wilson's second novel. It's beautifully written, I can tell you, from reading maybe the first quarter of it at this point. I started last night. Um, And it's a very solid historical novel. One of the things that seems to be, I don't know if this is a trend or if it's something that just seems to be a cluster of books. Um, The Bird King, the G. Willow Wilson novel, is is set in 15th century Spain. Muslim Spain is being taken over by what has become Spain. Um, Next in my pile is Zen Cho's uh, the True Queen, a Regency historical comedy, a sequel to her first novel. We have another uh, historical fantasy coming out from Guy Gabriel Kay later this year. And one of the questions, which we probably brought up before, is is fantasy, and is fantasy in particular, colonizing historical fiction to the point where so much of what we're seeing now is historical fantasy and the readers of historical fantasy, as Guy Kay is well aware, and he's told me many times, are nitpickers about historical accuracy in a way that puts to shame the <laughs> physics nitpickers and astronomy nitpickers of hard SF. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm not a reader of historical fiction, so I'm probably not the person to comment terribly much, but it's plausible. I mean, there is a lot that is common to constructing, particularly an epic fantasy narrative, uh, to reconstructing a historical narrative, I would have thought. Well, they're both in... The the historical novel and the fantasy novel have uh, one thing in common which is is crucial, and that is what what fantasy writers now call world-building and what historical writers used to call research. Uh, That is that unless you're going to just dump loads of exposition on the reader, you're putting the reader in a world and having the reader learn the rules of that world as they yeah, go yeah, through. Yeah. Uh, and in, in some cases, this can, in some cases, the world can be so remote from our experience that the experience of reading it is like reading a science fiction novel. My best example of that is probably Nicola Griffith's Hild. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a world of early medieval England that just is so... Even if we think we know something about it, the experience of a, uh, of a of a woman, of a nun in that period is so alien to anything we understand that we just have to learn the world as she learns it. So so that, I think that's part of the attraction. I wonder also if uh, 
there's a retreat into history. I mean, uh, the, we've, we've, we've not talked about this before specifically, but the world itself seems to be more dystopian than we expected to be living in at this point. Let me put it that way. And dystopia, and I've said this, actually I've said it in my column and I've said it to you, <coughs> dystopia no longer requires much imagination. It's the easiest thing to write. Anybody can put together a dystopia. And I wonder if looking back at historical periods is a way of uh, some an odd kind of, not escapism, because these novels deal with serious problems, anti-Semitism, and anti-Muslim sentiment uh, certainly are informing G. Willow Wilson's new novel. But if it's a way of displacing our anxieties onto historical periods. Well, mate, I don't know about displacing, but certainly, and I would imagine this would be true of the, the Wilson novel, uh, attempting to understand them, mm -hmm. uh, looking, at, at, looking for antecedents to those anxieties and how we might think about them process them, address them. That seems you know, plausible to me. I, th I think maybe that's part of what I'm getting at. It, 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 it's sort of as a way of abstracting the issues away from the specific anxieties we're facing. I mean, one of the, one of the best fantasy novels of last year, which we mentioned on our pod podcast, podcast before last, was uh, Naomi, Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver, which is a good... Uh, flaming uh, fantasy of fire versus ice, literally. But it's also a look at an ugly part of European history that sort of reflects back on an ugly part of our own history. But it might be easier to read about that if we're reading about it at, at, at that kind of remove. It's In a sense, it's the same argument that writers back in the 40s and 50s made about science fiction. Ray Bradbury famously argued about Fahrenheit 451 that it was when, when everybody else trying to write about McCarthyism was coming under suspicion, he was able to get away with it because nobody recognized that the book burning in Fahrenheit 41 was a direct allusion to what was going on in human society. So science fiction could deal with issues like intolerance, anti-Semitism, racism, technological oppression, whatever you wanted to deal with, um, the alienation caused by technology to get back to uh, – William Gibson for a second. And by displacing it into science fiction, we didn't have to deal with the immediate. The problem now is that the immediate future, the science fictional future and our experiential future, are blended in a way that makes it hard to tease them out. And to some extent, Gibson is responsible for that. So escaping back into historical periods might be an easier way to deal with these issues. Maybe. I mean, I, I'm... Not a hundred percent convinced about the escape angle. Escape is not. And, the and right I, I know you. And I know you don't mean it that way, but I'm not sure that that's what it is. I think. I think what it is actually is it's a broader spectrum of people trying to come to uh, terms with the same kinds of problems. So that people may, who may be writers who don't really want to write science fiction are coming to terms with what's happening around them by asking what if type questions through history and historical mm. fantasy, and that seems an entirely reasonable and probable thing to do which is a kind of 
mythical way of, of, of looking at issues. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to suggest at all, and I, you're right, the word escapism is, 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 is the wrong one. I don't mean to suggest that novels like G. Willow Wilson's or, or, or Zen Cho's or Guy Gavriel Kay's are a way of evading our problems. They're a way of looking at them through a different perspective. There's no doubt, for example, that Zen Cho's first novel, The Sorcerer to the Crown, and I'm sure the second one, which I've not started, deal with very interesting class and feminist and, and racial issues that uh, are easier in some ways to deal with. It's easier to kind of make a um, satisfactory narrative out of something where we don't need to worry about the outcome because yeah. it's happened. Yeah, maybe. Let me ask you a question that occurred to me while you were talking, and it's this. Are you ever surprised by the persistence of standard forms in the genre? I mean, I know genre fiction is by its nature, by its very description, generic. But, you know, when I look around at the books that are around me or that I'm waiting to read, you know, I could probably point to four or five space opera novels, certainly, that are around and being discussed, whether they're Ancestral Night by Elizabeth mm -hmm. Baer or the Arcady Martin book, or whether it's the new Max Gladstone novel or the Al Reynolds or whatever else. These forms persist. They are intrinsic to science fiction. We, we don't seem to move beyond them. Sometimes we reinterpret them. Sometimes we go back and we look at what they once were and, and try and re, you know, uh, rediscover that passion. But they, they persist. They don't tend to get it abandoned and moved on from. I think that's true, and I think this is part of what I meant about bringing a new perspective to a familiar form is a way of reinventing that form. And I think also we get into a kind of tunnel vision by reading almost exclusively science fiction and fantasy, which I, I do more than I want to. I mean, I, I, was, I was hoping in retirement I would go back and read all the mainstream novels I hadn't. But my reading in mainstream fiction brings me to another observation. Yes, our field is sort of locked into. It's not locked into, but it certainly is. There are familiar molds that people can write in. That's true of any fiction. There is. Uh, that's, you know, the, 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 we've got the generation starship novel. We've got the, the, the historical fiction since the time of the Victorians has had the generational novel, the, the generational saga from the Foresight saga down to uh, Lawrence Durrell's uh, and, and, and so you have standard forms in any kind of writing we're more familiar with the forms that are standard to the kind of writing we read than uh, that, that in mainstream fiction but I mean if you look for example at horror fiction which I admit to being ignorant of the last few years as I've already proved on this podcast um, it seems to me that when I read a new horror story I'm Ticking off the boxes of, of is this Mackin? Is this Poe? Is this Lovecraft? Is this uh, Clive Barker? Is this Peter Straub? Is this Stephen King? There are only so many things you can do in any particular kind of story. Um, if you're looking at the story only as a very specific structure, um, but as as as, as my, my part point is this: if you take that structure and look at it from the point of view of the outsider which if there's any movement in fantasy and science fiction in the last five, five to ten years that I think is important, it is a perspective of the outsider, the perspective of the, you know, not, not the hero, and let's, let's take an example from movies, not Rick Deckard in Blade Runner, 
but the guys selling sushi on the street, you know, the, 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 the working class people. I mean, one of the, one of the brilliant things about Blackfish City is that he dealt with the extras, with the people on the street, with the, the, the people who are always in the background of heroic stories. And I think that's, that's a way of looking at classic science fiction stories from a completely different perspective. The Generation Starship story, as I said, can be a story of, of class oppression and slavery and economic uh, imbalance. Um, and it probably always was that, but you make that explicit when you look at it from the perspective of a Kim Stanley Robinson or a River Solomon or a Sarah Pinsker. Yeah. Interesting. So, normally we would go for an hour, but I think since we found ourselves struggling to, well, get episodes recorded, we don't really have to, we can mix it up. Um, before we maybe wind up, mm-hmm. what else is on your mind about science fiction and fantasy at the moment? I mean, when I look around right now, I'm just trying to keep up with the plethora of everything. Um, uh-huh. I've, I've gone through thinking about year in reviews, all that's done. Um, it's now the you know the bright new the, the bright new year of 2019. Trying try to work out if I'm going to actually attend the World Science Fiction Convention in Dublin, which I know you're going to. Um, all those sorts of things. Parenthetically, that's a piece of news we should add to people who might be thinking about going and who haven't really done anything about it. Is that the block of hotel rooms opened up on the Dublin Worldcon website this week, and I gather there was a kind of land rush. Uh, I got a room myself, but basically the the message I was getting in emails from friends is if you don't have your room in Dublin, you're never, ever going to Dublin at all. There are no rooms there forever, and you might as well stay home and die. I um, suspect that's probably a slight overreaction, Gary. I think that's an exaggeration. I wanted to say one thing about, about my sense of science fiction is um, there's a classic book on the history of science which has been – unfortunately turned into a kind of meme. Um, it's Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions because he came up with the idea of paradigm shift, which is now used by diet gurus and, and spiritual advisors and management consultants and everybody else. But the paradigm shift had to do with two kinds of science, what he called normal science and uh, revolutionary science, essentially. Normal science goes on day-to-day doing the same things. It does the research that sustains the world that reinforces ideas that recertifies theories and science fiction i think is the same way a lot of the books i get in the mail not just not necessarily from locus but from many publishers is what i consider normal science fiction it looks fine here's an alien invasion story here's a galactic space opera here's and these things probably sell better than most of the science fiction that i actually end up reviewing um some of them are excellent writers. I have no problems with some, – some of them write really long novels uh, like Peter Hamilton. And I would, if I had time, enjoy these things perfectly well. What I'm looking for is science fiction or that, that shifts something. It, 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 it shifts from a different perspective, makes you look at something in a slightly different way. Um, and that's how I think the field advances. I have a whole theory about this. I have a theory that every generation has a notion of how science fiction advances. And for one generation, the generation back in the 30s and 40s, it was all ideas. You had to have a new idea to write a new science fiction story. 
I don't think we're in that generation anymore. There was a generation in the 60s and 70s that thought you need style. You need to have language. You need to have uh, a, a kind of sense, a literary sensibility that these older guys didn't have. So every revolution comes up with a different way of advancing the genre. And it, um, and it never stops. And the, the, the way we're advancing the genre now is looking at things from different perspectives. That's my argument. Um, and there's a lot of that going on. It's amazing, given the fairly limited number of tropes that you mentioned earlier, that people come up with completely new ways of looking at these. But in mainstream fiction, people come up with completely new ways of looking at divorce and children and families and grandfathers and automobiles and <laughs> yes. restaurants and things like yes, that. Yes, so. absolutely, absolutely. It's very true. But for the moment, I think I, I might wind us up there, Gary. We're, we're not quite at an hour, but we're, we're not a mile from it. We're close enough. We're close and, enough. you know, given that we started off the years sort of saying we weren't sure how often we'd podcast, we seem to be delivering quite regularly. Which surprises and pleases me. Well, we should end up by re repeating our congrat congratulations to the nominees for the Philip K. Dick Awards. Yep. And... As the year goes on, we will be congratulating more nominees for more awards endlessly. Without a doubt. And pointing you to Dublin29.com if you want to look into attending the World Science Fiction Convention this year uh, in August uh, in uh, Dublin, Ireland. Uh, and pointing you to all sorts of other things as the time goes on. But now I'm genuinely rambling, Gary. So with that ramble, I will call it an episode. And this has been the Coon Street Podcast. Okay, until next week. Bye.